Hello and welcome to Not A Buffalo, the show where we discuss the science and technology that will save the world. My name's Ben, and in this episode, we finally reveal the science behind the Easter Bunny. This is Jack, and he wants me to point out that that is not true. Jack, how are you? I'm good. I mean, it's not so much that it's not true that I object to, it's more like I feel like there's not enough rigour surrounding the Easter Bunny. What do you mean rigour? Do you mean it's not in Latvia enough? I'm always disappointed when things aren't in Latvia, but I know you live in Latvia. Or don't. Just in that small farm you have in eastern Latvia. That's actually the only Baltic state I've not been to, I think. Wait, is Finland a Baltic state or is it just the three? Finland is not a Baltic state. <laughs> I mean, it's in the right area. Yeah, so it's Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia. Yeah. Finland is about as Baltic as Estonia is Scandinavian, I guess. Yeah. Isn't it? It's that sort of thing where you've got like a bit of cultural bleed, but... Estonia is still in Eastern Europe. I'm sorry, Estonia. I, I, I know you want to be in Scandinavia. I do like that Finland and Estonia just have their own little language group by themselves that no one else understands how they came up with it. But they just did. Hungarian's also in that language group. Yeah. Uralic. Yeah. Gotta love a bit of Uralic language, ain't you? It's gorgeous. I love that. I'm not sure if we shared it. We might have shared it on the podcast before, but the language tree that I think you originally put me onto, and you have the whole Indo-European language tree branching out, and then you just have Uralic and a little oh, yeah. sapling off to the side yeah. in the corner of the picture. It's very... <laughs> yeah, it's very much just like, yeah, this is on its own. you know. <laughs> we... But then you've got lots of interesting language isolates like that. Like, I think Catalonian is one of them. They have Cornish on there, so I think. And Breton. Cornish is boring, though. Cornish is just another Celtic language. <laughs> There's not, like, a shortage of Celt-influenced languages. Yeah. Are there any Cornish speakers left alive? I feel like it's one of those things where I read, or, like, the last... There were two Cornish speakers left alive in the world, and they don't speak to each other. Mm. Or something like that. It, it feels like it's one of those situations. <laughs> I think what happened... I might be mixing this up with another one of those small languages, but I think what happened is Cornish actually died out in... The 90s or 2000s, but it had a revival since. Oh, okay. You know, that news was something that brought lots of new people to the language and stimulated interest in it. So it's like it's one of those languages that has sort of died and then been resurrected, mm. which is kind of interesting. And does your first story have anything to do with language? Because this is the perfect opportunity for a segue. No, in fact, my first story has nothing to do with language. That's a perfect segue. <laughs> it's the traditional Jack segue. It has nothing to do with anything. That should be your YouTuber name, Jack Segway. Jack Segway. Attorney at law. It, it sounds like a, a slightly camp all-American hero. <laughs> Why slightly camp? Well, because he's going to be on a Segway. <laughs> That's where he, how he travels to crimes. Like Jack Segway. And his mysterious cape of green. You know, that's... The cape is just flapping behind, but only very gently, because you can only go so fast on a Segway. Issue number one, defeated by stairs. <laughs> Issue number two, defeated by battery power. <laughs> <laughs> two, two major issues which put him in the same Venn diagram as the Daleks. <laughs> now, one day we might even get to a news story on this. <laughs> oh, I don't know why I found that so funny, but I really enjoyed that. I guess we're leaving that in then. The Adventures of Jack Segway. Well, I'm happy to have provided the title for this podcast. Jack Segway and the Daleks. So... Yes, my first story has nothing to do with anything, because nothing has anything to do with anything, really. It's all just chaos whirling through the void. But speaking of voids, people often come to me and they say to me, Jack, science keeps changing. Science keeps changing, and you know, you get, you get Aristotle, he did some physics, didn't he? 
And then people come along and they say, oh no, we've got other physics, they're better. Who should I believe? Who should I believe, you know? Should I believe Aristotle? Should I believe Newton? Or, you know, should I believe that more recent bloke, Einstein? You know, is he right? What's he like? Is he good? People come to me all the time saying this sort of stuff. Because science was wrong about Apophis hitting the Earth. So, there's a big old asteroid in orbit. Apophis is kind of the poster child for Earth-destroying asteroids. Not that they needed a poster child after the whole dinosaurs thing. But, yeah, Apophis is, is a sort of civilization inconveniencing sized asteroid. And by inconveniencing, I mean destroying. But we're an optimistic podcast, so we like to soften the blow with how we deliver this kind of news. <laughs> it was announced yesterday that it, it was not going to hit. An announcement from NASA who uh, are somehow involved with this sort of thing. They track all of the, well, they track as many of the large asteroids as they can keep track of. Realistically, that they're slightly underfunded, and it's probably a good idea to fund them because it would be good to know if there's a large asteroid that's going to hit Earth. There was some concern caused a little while back when some observations suggested that Apophis might hit in 2029, and obviously that would be bad because, you know, we'll all be around then. And then everyone went, okay, it's not going to hit in 2029. It's going to hit in 2036, which is much better. You can have at least four more lattes in that time. You have one latte every year and a half? Roughly. I don't like to limit myself, but you know, that's why I say at least. And modelling ruled out those, but everyone was still kind of like, well, it could be 2068 because they hadn't fully modelled the orbits up to then. But new modelling of the orbits has revealed that it won't hit for at least 100 years. And are we sure this time? Because this is starting to sound like one of those apocalypse cults that is just trying to sell merchandise before it says, it says we're all going to die. Well, NASA do have merch, if that's what you're suggesting. Is that how they're trying to get the extra funding they need? I don't know, maybe. Should we ask them? We could try. I'll tweet them from the account. Yeah, tweet them, tweet them. I'm sure that, I'm sure that they will. But they'll definitely respond. We've been following them for months now. <laughs> they'll definitely respond. <laughs> that's how it works, isn't it? Yeah. I feel like we're digressing from the topic. You said we're not all going to die. Which is the kind of news we like to bring you on Not A Buffalo. Exactly. And because this is quite a short story, that's why I did a relatively long intro into it. Because that's my story. We're not going to die. The science was wrong. And now the new science says we're not going to die for at least 100 years. You know, after that, anything's fair game. But I imagine most of our audience will be dead by then. So that's fine. Also, surely it's we're not going to die from an asteroid. There's a multitude of other things that could end the human race, but it won't oh, yeah. be that particular asteroid. Oh, definitely. Like, I mean, some of the impacts of climate change will see off a good portion of the people listening to this podcast. And so how do they do the, the modelling? I take it the modelling kept changing because they were gathering more and more data from tracking the asteroid? Yeah, essentially it's more data means better modelling. What they're modelling is its orbit around the sun. Well, it's, it's very eccentric orbit around the sun <laughs> and when that will intersect with Earth's orbit because we've, we've, been, we've been measuring Earth's orbit for a little while because, you know, we have a sort of egotistical interest in it as a species. But yeah, more data means better modelling. That's the boring lesson here. And are NASA the only ones tracking asteroids or I presume some of the other space agencies are doing the same thing and isn't there a privately funded group that are trying to track asteroids and figure out some kind of missile defense system. I feel like the, like an eccentric billionaire has started something like that. There are a couple of like tech startups which are attempting to track and predict orbits with various methods, so typically with AI, the usual buzzword that's applied to this kind of stuff. 
And what did you say the name of the asteroid was again? Sorry. Apophis. I think it's 99942 Apophis. Okay. Because when I heard that, I thought they were trying to get something from apotheosis, as in it was causing change. And I thought that seems really... That seems very religious for NASA to say something like that. Oh, no, 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 no. Apophis is the uh, Egyptian god of chaos. Well, I mean, that's great that, uh, you know, just shows the value of science is that they've all been able to assure us that we're not going to die from this asteroid. And I think that's a great news because we're about to have 5G arrive on the scene in a lot of urban areas, particularly across much of the world. And 5G is actually going to help us not just connect better, but potentially stay charged up better. But I actually kind of have two stories um, that are linked. So the first story is from Penn State University, who looked at a way of using radio waves to power wearable devices. But their paper was behind a paywall. So I looked at a study from the Georgia Institute of Technology. That's what you get for putting your science behind money. (laughs) Yeah, Penn State. Boo! Boo, Penn State, boo! (laughs) Instead, I'm going to talk about the story from Georgia Institute of Technology, who specifically looked at 5G to wirelessly power Internet of Things devices. That's cool. It's really cool. It's a little bit Tesla, isn't it? A little bit Tesla, It's got that vibe, hasn't it? A little bit Nikola Tesla. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, uh, at the moment you've probably seen the 4G on your phone, which is 4G stands for fourth generation of mobile wireless connectivity. 5G is now being rolled out, and that's how we're going to connect, and it's basically going to mean you get faster internet speeds on your phone and on you know, in your house and things like that. So it's a very good thing. It's going to massively up the speed of internet, apparently. But one thing that the Georgia Tech inventors have looked at is a way of trapping that energy. They've figured out a way of being able to power small devices by capturing some of that radio waves and turning it into energy. So they've used something called a Rotman lens-based rectifying antenna, or a rectenna. <laughs> Is that why you chose it? Is that why you chose this tournament? That, oh, it's the Rectenna. It's a really cool story, but that is partly the reason, because I always like just going for the words that I find amusing or interesting. I don't know what any of the words that you, you said before it mean at all. The Rotman, was it? Yeah, so a Rotman lens is... Yeah, so it's a type of beam-forming network. So yeah. basically when energy waves or, or radio waves hit it it can allow multiple beams to be focused without the need for switches or phase shifters. Yeah, it just uses sort of bent wires, doesn't it? Or bent channels to focus the electrical energy. Oh, it's very, it's very pretty. I'm looking at circuit diagrams now. (laughs) And I will share the device, there's some pictures of the device that they created for this. Imagine a slightly bent piece of plastic with then little sort of sockets and on one side i think the example they used had six sockets and that was the receiving side and then it it could direct the energy waves from there to eight sockets sockets is the wrong word but it's kind of the best way to describe what they look like to eight sockets on the other side which would then be the receiving wires and it's called a rectifying antenna because it converts the energy to direct current and only allows it to travel in one direction one of the advantages that they found of the rotman lens 
is that it's got wide angular coverage so Mm. it can basically capture the radio waves normally you need an antenna pointed in a very specific direction Mm. to be able to capture the radio waves because they come in a narrow beam whereas a rockman lens allows you to kind of capture them from a wider range and that's particularly difficult with these yeah for these millimeter waves or these these large waves the rockman lens is better able to capture it but what they can then do this new device can convert it into direct current And the point of this is you could just be walking around in a city with, say, a wearable smartwatch on and your phone in your pocket. And then when you go home, you know, you might have a smart umbrella leaning against the wall and you wouldn't need back. Why would you need a smart umbrella? Why would you need to charge an umbrella? I don't know. They exist. I think they tell you if it's raining or not and whether to put it up. What the? (laughs) Well, you better take you better make sure you take the umbrella out with you, Charles. Otherwise, you might not know if it's raining. No, I actually think the smart umbrella that I saw messages you. It sends you alert to your phone if you've left it behind somewhere. But it was really bad. So if like you left it in the hallway and you went upstairs to your bedroom, it would send you a message saying, like, it would notify you saying you've left your umbrella behind, which is obviously really annoying. That is a very needy umbrella. But it's a good example of how we want to create smart everything and turn everything into an internet of things and connect everything to the, the internet. And that's going to be very expensive in terms of batteries. But with this invention... And obviously it's early stages, they have a lot more work to do on it, mm. but it would allow you to just have these things as battery free and they'd be powered just from you being in a city and having the 5G waves all around you, which is really cool because, for example, if you have, you know, it would allow watches and phones to get a lot smaller and a lot less bulky or a lot thinner because you don't need space for the battery, but also you'd never need to charge them up because they're just constantly being charged, which I think is, is really cool. And that's kind of the story is uh, it's just a, a new device that they've created and they say the main benefit of it is we won't need batteries uh, in, in as many things which that's always good you know batteries are an expensive thing to make you'll have one battery constantly strapped to your side charging 17 devices i see no, i see no problem with this i see no problem when all of your devices fail after 30 seconds without the battery it's obviously that there's a long way to go and yeah. i think the primary application for it it's probably a long way off from being able to put it into a smartwatch mm-hmm. for example certainly the example model which again I'll, I'll share some photos of in the show notes the example model was was quite big i suppose the best way to describe it is it looked like it was about the size of a a large smartphone in and of itself and it was only obviously a, a, yeah. a prototype model but it was that kind of size it's still very cool it's a nice development it's almost like a development of wireless charging in a weird way isn't it exactly it's from a it's from a different direction i don't think that wireless charging uses that because i've never heard of it no it doesn't because they do note in this story actually that the primary is is kind of a a happy accident Mm. no one made 5g with it being in mind that they could also use it to power devices it it is primarily used for communication Mm. and for internet access obviously so it's it's kind of something they've realized that actually yeah this works very well so yeah so the researchers on this were aline Ide in the athena lab in georgia tech school of electrical and computer engineering and they worked along with jimmy hester who is a senior lab advisor and the chief technology officer and co-founder of atharaxon which is a georgia tech spin-off developing 5g radio frequency identification technology rfid which is again something you see a lot it's in things like if you have a travel yeah. card for example like the oyster card in london um, and things like that we use rfid mm-hmm. a lot more now um, in various devices and things so yeah that's my first story the future of batteryless technology could be which is weird because we've talked about how excited i am about batteries on this podcast quite a lot of times so the fact that we're also trying to get rid of them is depressing but i don't think it, i think we may be able to power 
toasters and umbrellas and smartwatches a lot sooner than we're able to power for example cars using this technology particularly if you're trying to do a cross-country drive in a car where the 5g will not be as dense because that's one of the things that it does note in this article as well is that the f one of the reasons it's possible is because the fcc which is the federal communications commission and regulates this kind of stuff in the united states of america has allowed denser hubs of 5g which makes this energy harvesting possible yeah i mean regardless of how dense you you make those hubs really you're still going to need some form of battery if you want you know your grid to be powered by renewables yes you know? so it's it's not like batteries are going anywhere anytime fast and good luck energy harvesting in the ocean <laughs> <laughs> i can see it particularly being commodified as we said by telecom companies and then they will start offering you know phones on their specific plan that you don't need a battery with or that are slightly thinner and people probably get sick of it and so my phone keeps snapping in half because it's too thin so i gotta go back to having the one with the battery in it please yeah and then they say no no that would ruin our business model you must have a powerless phone always on 16 percent battery never (laughs) it's always just about to need to be plugged in and charged but never quite yeah it's always just blinking isn't it it's at that stage where it's sort of like a little the screen goes a little bit darker and everything just works a bit slower are we really in the mood to be doing this podcast tonight? I feel like we're... <laughs> neither is I feeling particularly optimistic about the science technology that will save the world. <laughs> well, I mean, you say that, but my next story has nothing to do with phones. That was my segue. Okay. My next story, I read about it last week, and then I read that it actually happened last year in October. But it's such a good story that, you know, I'm going to do it anyway, because why not, Right. Most of our listeners get all of their science news from us, so they won't have heard about it elsewhere. Most of our listeners are underinformed now. <laughs> <laughs> They're highly informed, just not about... Just not by us. Like, if they, <laughs> To be honest, if, if people get most of their science news from us, then th- there's a problem in society. I like to think that we encourage people to go and... We're kind of the gateway drug that gets people hooked on science. Well, yeah, but if they're still getting most of their science, that's still only like four stories a month from us, plus a maximum of three from elsewhere. So that's seven stories. A month. I mean, that's just not that's not enough science, people. You need more than seven stories a month. I put at least twelve stories a day on our social media, so that's loads. Do more. you really? Really? No. <laughs> I mean, I might do if I had more time. I probably wouldn't. But they get a couple of extra stories a week. I actually so don't know. That, as I'm saying, do you? I genuinely mean, do you? Like, <laughs> because I don't know. I have remembered to social media some stories. Probably. Is social media really a verb now? Average about two or three a week. I mean, I can't be bothered to say tweet and Instagram and Facebook and what's the other one? Website. I mean, the, word, the verb is share, isn't it? Oh, yeah, but. I'm not sharing, I'm trying to force feed it to people so that they consume our content. What you're telling me is that people get most of their science from us, which I'm is... I'm not telling you anything, I just want you to say your story! <laughs> and that and that science is, is force-fed to them by you. Are you punishing me for the first edit we had to do last, you had to do last time? I'm not punishing you. I'm just being, you know, there isn't... That's the thing about the universe. Things just are, you know, they're not good. They're not bad. They just are and are mostly chaotic because of entropy. So what is your next story? It was going to be that awkward silence. but Your next story is about the effect of awkward silence on two podcasters. Are you like double checking the story <laughs> or reading it or something? No, no, no. I was, I was enjoying the story that was about awkward silences. The story you keep ruining. 
I apologise. <laughs> story is that there is a cemetery in Belgium which is under siege from mutant crayfish clones. This sounds incredible. I told you it was worth sharing. Mutant? No, let let's start with. Where would you like? The, where would you like to begin in that that wonderful list of adjectives and nouns? <laughs> so there's a graveyard in Belgium. Mm-hmm. Is this by the sea? Then this graveyard, or have these crayfish clones learnt to walk on land? It's a slightly watery graveyard. It's in Antwerp. Oh yes, Antwerp, that famous undersea city in Belgium. Yeah, well, I think quite a lot of Belgium is actually below sea level. Yeah, that makes sense. Although, yes, you're totally joking, but <laughs> unfortunately, it's true. A lot of Belgium and the Netherlands and that sort of region is is all below sea level, or largely below sea level. And this is a graveyard which has a lot of pools and little watery areas and these mutant crayfish clones were discovered sometime in october november last year can i just check was this an actual study or were they watching lord of the rings and mistook Gollum and the hobbits for crayfish i mean it could have just been that it was 2020 and some stuff happened in 2020 and this is quite a 2020 story okay so it might have just been they saw it and they went oh yes 2020 and then they they dug a little bit deeper and they found oh yes these are called the marbled crayfish it's a mutant that developed in captivity, we think, but they reproduce asexually. So they are all clones of a single female <laughs> and they are pretty aggressive. They're quite similar to a type of crayfish that you find in Florida, but they were bred up in Germany. And that's where this particular species developed in the 90s. Lots of countries immediately went, okay, this is potentially quite a nasty invasive species if it can produce asexually as well. And they put bans in place saying, you cannot release these, it's illegal to release these, we'll fine you big monies if you release these. And then someone released them. Because that's that's how it works. (laughs) And they were discovered last year in this graveyard in Belgium where they've taken up residence very firmly. They're about 10 centimetres long each and they dig quite deep into the ground up to a metre. And a graveyard is not the best place to go digging around if you want to keep everybody happy. It also probably doesn't hurt this story that it it was discovered in October and that's also when Halloween is. (laughs) So... Is that why the scientists were in the graveyard? I guess so. It's only logical, really, isn't it? Where else do you do science on Halloween, right? Uh, just take my, taking my microscope down to see Auntie Nora. Auntie Nora's dead, Jim. <laughs> Auntie Nora's been dead for 40 years. Are they planning at some kind of response to either eradicate these crayfish or contain them? or? Not really, is the short answer. They are making a bit of an effort to contain them, but it's kind of hard to contain them because they're in a graveyard and no one wants to dig up the graveyards. <laughs> So they're they're contenting themselves mostly with studying them. But they do represent a potentially potentially invasive species. Also kind of fun that they took up residence in the graveyard and they generally feed at night. That's appropriate. Isn't it just? Isn't it just? Is that the word I'm looking for? Was anything about 2020 appropriate? (laughs) Really? Yeah. If that's the depth of, you know, emotional severity we can use in our language to describe that year. We probably got off okay, didn't we? 2020 was appropriate. It wasn't appropriate. Nothing's appropriate about 2020. (laughs) Nothing appropriate. Nothing happened that was appropriate in 2020. But anyway, let me take you back to 1950. Because in 1950, scientists have been trying to figure out the relationship between the radius of an atom and its electronegativity. So electronegativity is 
a propensity for an atom to pick up electrons, become negatively charged and create negative ions during chemical reactions. That's what electronegativity is. And that's quite useful to know for a number of chemistry and material science applications, because obviously that one of the things you want to do in those is chemical reactions and knowing how materials are going to chemically react is useful. And scientists at the Chalmers University of Technology led by Martin Ram, who is the main author of the study and is the research leader from the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Engineering. Just, can I just ask, is that Ram as in R-A-U-M? No, R-A-H-M. Oh, okay. Well, no matter. I thought it was going to be the German word for space. That'd be great, right? That would be great. But no, what they decided to do was squash some atoms using pressure because this is something that apparently hasn't been explored in a lot of detail. Like, we've done a lot of things to huh. atoms, but just squashing them itself isn't something we've looked at a lot. And what they discovered is, as you'd expect, the, the atom gets smaller, the radius shrinks as you squash it, as you compress it. And, you know, they didn't just kind of put some atoms on the floor and step on it. It was a little bit more sophisticated than That's that. good. That's good. I'm glad to see the 50s were not entirely barbarous. No, this is... Sorry, this is the study recently. Oh. Oh, okay. Apologies. So since the 1950s, they've been trying to figure out this relationship between the atom's radius and electronegativity. And now the studies by Martin Ram and his colleagues have helped to figure it out essentially so by squashing the atoms they were able to reduce the atoms radius and then they could see the effect on the electronegativity and because they were just using pressure they didn't bring in any other kind of chemical reactions so they knew for certain what the relationship was Mm -hmm. and they realized that the smaller the radius the smaller the electronegativity oh is this is this going to be something to do with where there are available spaces in the electron spheres or something like that? No, so it's kind of more fundamental than that. Okay. Because they used iron atoms and they used silicon atoms as well. Mm-hmm. But basically by measuring how much the compression and the reduction in radius affected the electronegativity, they were able to come up with formulas that also looked at the total energy. They were also able to tell them how much total energy would be in the atom mm-hmm. as well. And they've become able to come up with these, uh, this set of equations that allows them to then figure out these properties. So once you have one aspect, then you can figure out the others. Yeah. That makes sense. I'm oh, sorry, once you have one or two one or two of the aspects. But they've been able to put this then into a database. And I think they've put something like, they tested 93 different atoms. So they've been able to kind of map out these equations to a lot of the periodic mm. table. And this is really useful for other chemists because they can go, I need to build a material of a certain electronegativity mm-hmm. so that it does the thing I want it to do. I can plug into this formula. I can see what kind of pressure I need to put it under in order to get that electronegativity. And this is really useful for things like for creating superconductors, for example, which need a lot of negativity because you want to see how quickly they can pick up electrons mm-hmm. or not pick up electrons, as the case may be. And because you want to see them yeah, conduct electric current without resistance. And this allows them to basically say, I need to do this. What kind of pressure do I need to compress it to? Yeah. So rather than say, for example, supercooling it, you might be able to compress it instead and create a, a superconductor. And it's quite cool because it's quite a fundamental thing they've done because they've created this online database now, which a lot of chemists can just access. And uh, yeah, I think there's 93 atoms on there at the moment, 93 different atoms. And it's just going to help developments, not just with superconductors, but with other uh, aspects of material science as well, because it's quite a fundamental thing, having the radius of the, the atom the electronegativity and the energy and having that relationship all figured out just saves a lot of scientists uh, a lot of work what does actually happen when you squash an atom i mean apart from if you squash it far enough fusion do its properties change because like that's certainly the yes. case with you know material physics so when you squash stuff properties begin to like move around a little bit I- i'm really curious to know what are there any particular standouts from this this list of them that they they tested both 
the atomic radius and electronegativity decrease with the pressure relevant to ambient condition. And so when you do squash an atom, you decrease the electronegativity. And as we've already said, that's how likely it is to pick up atoms and create um, negatively charged ions in a chemical reaction. So if you want it to do less of that, mm-hmm. you can now squash it instead of, for example, supercooling it, doing something else, some other chemical process to it. And so it's essentially that, but it also reduces the energy. So I think yeah, it also reduces the energy in the atom. So again, if you need atoms with less energy for whatever reason in experiments... It reduces the energy squashing them. Sorry, no, it's the energy differential between the various levels of the the atom because you know how the you have the difference yeah okay okay the electrons get close together because the the, the radii is, is decreasing so it's specifically so it's to do with how much energy it would take to jump between electron orbits essentially yes yeah okay yeah that's my understanding of it yeah and again you know they, they give the example uh, as i said of of superconductors this is another way of creating superconductors that might be you know if you don't want to supercool something for whatever reason or you can't supercool something then maybe putting it under a lot of pressure instead yeah that's cool but yeah, and I think that's something that has been looked at previously, and they mentioned that in the in the paper. But actually, coming up with these equations and coming up with this table that can then be applied to a lot of different atoms and that can be used by other scientists on their own experiments is something that's not been done before. So that's the kind of really useful bit. But yeah, that's all my stories, Jack. Have you got anything else for us? So I suppose it's time for no corner corner because we've not planned a corner. Welcome to no corner corner, Ben. What have you been reading? What have I been reading? I'm reading The Hobbit. Have you read it before? Are you rereading yeah, it? Yeah, I'm, re- I'm rereading it. I do a couple of book projects with friends to keep the book thing interesting, where we read the same book at the same time. Kind of like book clubs, but with only two people in it, because clubs get rubbish after you add a third person. Okay. <laughs> Are you enjoying it? Oh, I'd say it's adequate. If there's anything that's going to get us a response to the social media, it's calling The Hobbit adequate. <laughs> the amount of people we are going to annoy. <laughs> this is the thing isn't it is if you have an opinion on lord of the rings the hobbit or harry potter you're always wrong there is no right opinion like no matter what opinion you express about any of those things someone will be angry with you you're enjoying the hobbit it's nice reading a large sort of like well-known book again because you know then it gives me the opportunity to be indifferent to it I know it'll make your club rubbish, but I'll read it again and join you. Gush about it, because I love Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. I do like The Hobbit, but when it comes to stuff like this, I'm always very cautious about gushing about them. (laughs) What are you reading? I just finished the third and final book in the Interdependency Trilogy by John Scalzi, and I will now happily recommend that trilogy. It was very good, very enjoyable. The third book did not turn out how I thought it would. I knew there'd be a twist coming. Mm -hmm. And it was not the twist I expected. Interesting. And it was, it's it's a series, it's fundamentally a series about the end of civilization or the threat of the end of civilization. Which is an excellent topic for a series. Yeah, and the way he does it, he does it, I think the ending, I don't want to spoil anything, but I think it's just done very well. No, I, I actually really enjoyed it. <laughs> I loved the some of the characters in it. I really liked, I found it very easy to read. I found it very easy to read as well. It's one of those things where just I got through the trilogy quite quickly for me. I think I got through all three books in a couple of weeks. That's pretty good, isn't it? Um, yeah. yeah, which is relatively quick for me. R- really, really enjoyed it. I've now started, I really want to finish off my Isaac Asimov, so I've started reading the first book in the Empire trilogy of his, uh, which is oh, Stars Like Dust. I thought you'd finished the Isaac Asimov trilogy. No, I've, I'd finished off the robots and I've finished all of the foundation books. So I now just have the the Empire ones. And then there's probably a few of his short stories and things that I've not read yet. But I know I've read, I've actually read a lot of those on holiday. I don't know why, but whenever we used to rent 
villas and things or go go to spain or something when i was a kid on holiday there was almost always isaac asimov books collections of asimov books in the kind of the holiday reading pile that, that whoever owned it was was leaving for guests um and so i read quite a lot of his short stories there yeah i actually it hasn't that really reminded me as well i really want to read some more arthur c Clarke because i have one of his books of short stories and that was really good again just very engagingly written oh i like arthur c Clarke. I really like the uh, the Sentinel by him. That's a really good short story. I think I've read that one. It's about a uh, trip to the moon and something that happens there. Oh, of course, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. It's, it's it's excellent. Thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe to the show to never miss an episode and rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. If you'd like to get in touch, we are at Not a Buffalo Pod on Twitter and Instagram, Not a Buffalo Podcast on Facebook. Or you can contact us through the website notabuffalo.wordpress.com Bye. Bye Bye-bye.